Hi, I'm Rachel Smiley and welcome to episode 5 of our Natural Capital series as part of Fast Sounds. This time we're focusing on arable natural capital and we are joined by John and Louise Seed from Woodend Farming Partnership and Agricultural Consultant Mary Jane Laurie to find out what they're doing on farm and to learn from their combined experiences. You can listen back to all previous episodes in this series and other podcasts we produce for the Farm Advisory Service including Mary Jane's Agriculture series, wherever you normally get your podcast from. Please like, follow and subscribe and leave us a review. Coming up on this episode, we will be discussing broadly what arable farming can do to boost natural capital stocks on their land and also the benefits for the wider agricultural sector. John and Louise Seed from Woodend Farming Partnership at Woodend near Duns in the Scottish Borders it is a family farming business with a focus on arable crops, free-range egg production, renewable energy and conservation, where they take a progressive, evidence-based approach to farming that enhances biodiversity, reduces the farm carbon footprint, whilst maintaining or even improving farm profitability. Mary Jane Laurie is an agricultural consultant at SAC Consulting, with previous experience in farmland conservation her current role covers the Lothians as well as delivering a number of farm advisory service programmes. She provides consultancy advice on a number of farming topics including biodiversity, agri-environment schemes and environmental issues. She's from a farming family and farms near Edinburgh with her husband and family. Welcome all and thank you for joining us today. Louise and John, we have briefly mentioned your farm in the intro but do you want to give us a bit more info about Woodend and the enterprises you have there? Yes, sure. Thank you very much, Rachel. Our family have been here for getting on for 90 years, but we started, Louise and I started farming together in 2008 when we formed Within Farming Partnership. And we've tried to take a progressive approach over the last 10 years and to have a, a, I guess the key words for us are having a productive, resilient and sustainable business. And we try to mitigate um, carbon emissions and maximise biodiversity and, and other things as we go along. We have learned a lot over the period. Our main enterprises, as you said, are free-range egg production. We've got 32,000 free-range laying hens and 190 hectares of arable land. Today, growing wheat, barley, oats and field beans are homegrown protein. And we make every effort as we go along and we've tried to improve the biodiversity and while we maintain productivity, I was certainly typical of many people of my generation, proper arable farming involved, plowing right to the edge of the field, moving the fence posts when I was plowing, making sure there was nothing in the field bar the crop that was supposed to be there. And I have learned a great deal, partly through Louise's influence, but today we've got over, eight, we've planted eight kilometres of new hedges and we've planted areas of new woodland wherever the, the arable ground was unproductive. So we've got some steep um, banks and other things, which for years we've ploughed and sowed and drove over with a combine, but were never really uh, very productive. So we've got five hectares, sorry, eight hectares of um, broadleaf woodland, 18 kilometres of hedges, and we've put grass margins around all of our fields. So we've got about five hectares of grass margins and um, species-rich grasslands. Our poultry field 
because it's free range. We've got 30% of that has got agroforestry in it. We've got over 2,500 trees growing there. And in amongst that, we've got 400 cider apple, apple trees as well. And our wind turbine and ground mounted solar. So we, we've tried to make the best of the ground we've got. And this week we're bottling cider. So we're a very diverse business. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. It does sound diverse. And Mary Jane, can you tell us a little bit more about your farming background? Yep, so I'm from a farming family in the borders, not actually too far from where John and Louise farm. So I'm from Berwickshire originally. I studied conservation biology at Aberdeen Uni, so I always knew I wanted to do something with nature and farming. So my idea behind doing that degree is that I would go and work for some sort of farmland conservation charity or something when I when I graduated, which I did. I started with FWAG and then they went bust, unfortunately, just as I started with them. So I then got into working with um, land agents doing agri-environmental schemes and then I, I realised that was the job for me. So when the uh, agricultural consultancy job came up at SAC that gave me the opportunity to broaden sort of my agricultural knowledge while still working in conservation so I've been at SAC in Edinburgh for 11 years working in farmland conservation um, and general agricultural consultancy in addition to that um, my husband and I also farm just um, west of Edinburgh with his parents so it's an arable and beef farm that we have there we also contract farm um, the arable area for our neighbour next door Brilliant, thank you. And we're here today to talk about natural capital and that includes the earth, rock, soil, air, water, plants and the animals. So first question would be if you can start to give us a little bit more information, John and Louise, about your natural capital projects that you've done on the farm and maybe the wider benefits that you've seen. Okay, um, we've we had an SRDP scheme, which I'm sure many people knew or know about, but back in 2009, and we put our first grass margins and um, wild bird habitats in then. But at that time, we didn't know quite as much as we know now. We learned a lot over the period, and Louise will be able to explain more about that as we go along. But um, wild bird at that time meant big bits of kale that perhaps people were going to chase pheasants out of. And we don't do that anymore, but we have learned that um, to support biodiversity and build corridors for wildlife and other things, we, we've we've developed three to four meter wide margins around every single field and along every water course that's on the farm. And we've also, as I said before, planted these species rich areas. Perhaps Louise would explain about the varieties and what we've. How, how it's evolved because that she's really been at the heart of that. Yeah, we first um, introduced grass margins in 2009 um, under an SRDP scheme, scheme through the Scottish Government. And another major project we had was when we put on our poultry unit because it's free range hens. So where our first shed was a 16,000 bird shed. And along with that went eight hectares of grassland and trees, which we were obliged to put in. So we took out a wheat field to do this. So um, we, I researched um, to get a species-rich poultry mix as I could, which was quite interesting. So it was a little bit more expensive, but because I was interested in botany in general, I went for the most diverse uh, grass I could get and we were obliged to keep it short so it had to be topped 
So I was looking for a species that wouldn't mind being cut too much. And we planted, I think, um, over 600 native tree species. And the, the really, in, we wanted, we had to do that anyway, but the really interesting thing we found was just by our observation of the biodiversity on the, on the in, right in the middle of the farm, how important it was and how that improved hugely. Um, we saw big numbers of round the steading uh, swallows and house martins. I don't have any empirical data on that, but it was just mainly observation. So we, we noticed the small birds and um, obviously um, insects on the range um, were greatly improving. And um, so that, that came after we had we'd, um, established grass margins around all our other arable fields. So we saw a big difference overall in our farm and we, we, we sowed a, a standard grass and I think mainly fine grasses and um, wildflower mixes around the margin and um, which was relatively easy to do. Some established a bit better than others, but on observing them um, for over 10 years, we've seen them develop very nicely without too much management and we have now in among the grass, huge stands of bird's foot trefoil, muskmallow, knapweed, oxide daisy, wild carrot, and ladies' bed straw, to name but a few. And they've um, developed and improved over the years. Some areas are not so good, they're a bit weedy, but what, what you would call weedy, you know, there's some dockings and thistles. But what we do know is that they um, still enhance the biodiversity. And um, so we've observed, um, um, you know, a big increase in particularly um, bees are very noticeable, wild bees and um, obviously other insects and beneficial and uh, other pollinators. So our sort of, um, we see before our own eyes how the biodiversity on the whole farm has, has improved. And we are um, obviously very pleased to see that and we're keen to, um, keep doing as much as we can to improve the natural capital in that way and all the knock-on effects with um, pollinators and we hopefully it'll prove the certainly improve the the soil in around the margins and and that's that's made us um, appreciate the, the what's going on in the arable fields otherwise so it's been a it's been a very interesting journey for us and we've learned a lot and oh, we put in a Last year, we put in a buffer strip across the middle of a field, uh, across an old field boundary, um, kind of using what we'd already learned from all our other margins, what works well and what doesn't work so well. So we put in a standard mix, which we got from our usual seed supplier, um, which wasn't too expensive, but then we added in a few extras, um, particularly yellow rattle, which you get in most mixes but it does help to keep grasses from becoming too dominant and allows the flower as the flowering aspect um, to um, develop and um, we added in a few other mixes just to increase just the number of different plant species and um, we put in an, an annual um, cornfield annual mix as well so the cornfield annual mix looks very spectacular in the first year but um, it's, it's obviously still very beneficial. And we're seeing that a really good ground flora has established in that strip. 
and uh, it's a bit experimental we just wanted to see how many species we could we'd grow <laughs> in this little bit yeah um but it's been it's been interesting to see and we'll continue to monitor it i think is what's and we maybe get some good data out of it and count it maybe doing a bee counter or something like that as well just out of interest so that's that's about sums it up really yeah you've just kind of answered the question i was going to ask next you've when you says you were implementing them, you done some research for the species that you wanted to plant for the species rich grassland. Mm -hmm. At that time, was that information kind of readily available, what you could plant, or did you have to really do your research to know what would work? Yeah, I had to do quite a bit of research to find a suitable um, grass mix that would suit the hens and would also maintain its uh, quality in terms of the the flowering part of the sword and some what I did know is that some flowers don't like being cut and will not grow again and if you want to manage it like a um, wildflower meadow or a hay meadow you have to cut at a certain time of year and take the cuttings off which we weren't going to be able to do so I found a species rich poultry mix and I found um, that particularly birds foot, foot trefoil does persist and so do oxide daisies they don't mind being cut too much and but it has reverted a bit to a more grassy sward but that's not always a bad thing either but uh, what I've not always considered is that the native trees are very good for pollinating insects and and, and birds obviously as well so the the uh, so it was a journey of of research, but that was a very enjoyable part of it. And there are now lots of um, companies, small smaller companies, producing um, grass and flower mixes. So the choice is really quite quite huge, and a lot of it's experimental. I think you've just got to get on and sow it and manage it as best you can and see how it works. It's trying to strike the balance between providing those. Um, serve biodiversity and, and that, that um, benefits without impinging on the actual profitability of the business. And that, you know, biodiversity is important and regulating ecosystem processes and all that is, but we have to tailor our farming so that we can benefit wildlife and biodiversity and increase ecosystem stability. But what we can't afford to do is reduce the potential for agricultural yield and profitability. And Back to Rachel's thing, it's not been easy to get evidence and getting good advice is sometimes really quite difficult to um, access. We get told a lot about what people want us to do, but how to do it and the cost of doing it and how you manage your, your margins so as to maintain that biodiversity over a 10-year period. That's been quite um, difficult information to find and it, and it does require a, a fair input or a reasonable amount of input from our part in terms of um, if we have to mow it, being able to take the cuttings off, dealing with all that. On a busy farm in the middle of harvest time, this year we, we had our harvest and our hen turnaround all happened at the same time. So trying to fit all that in and maintain our business is not always been straightforward, but, but we're trying to, to strike that balance. And I think we're doing it. And the, the thing that um, perhaps we're fortunate that Louise is a botanist, a field botanist by training. And so a lot of that evidence and, and advice has been generated ourselves. Not everyone has access to that. 
whether it, and, and a lot of things that farmers are asked to do, whether it's carbon mitigation, implementation of renewable energy, or planting biodiverse strips, people say we want you to do that, but actually getting at information has been difficult. And, and we have worked with Mary Jane in developing and, and doing the, 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 you know, we, we are party to, to, to um, that work and trying to find ways of making it possible. But um, it is an issue. I, I, I don't think anyone would pretend that meeting the, these criteria, it's not always been easy. And, um, and sometimes we've gone up the wrong trail and had to do, you know, we've not always planted the right thing. Being frank about it, the, the first piece of um, agroforestry that we planted in steep bankings, we didn't think about the understory um, species that were going to be there. And while we talked about it, we ended up sowing a mix that was, um, it had some strange things in and it, was, it wasn't really a considered mix. We've just, this um, summer, we've, we've taken another 0.5 hectares out to plant the trees on a, on a steep, um, unproductive bit of ground. But what we did in September was we worked it and we sowed the, 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 the magic mix that Louise has developed over the piece that provides that um, diverse range of species and things. So, so we've learned by doing it and we've not always got it right, but we're, we're, I think we are getting better at it. I think that's the thing though, isn't it, John? It's the fear of doing the wrong thing and sometimes it's better just to do something than nothing at all. And obviously you've got the experience, Louise, to, to know where to start. Um, there is guidance out there, but you're right, it's it often needs to be tailored to your own farm and what you're trying to do and, and making sure that your business is still going to be productive and, and profitable no matter what you do. But I think... For a lot of people, it's the, the fear of doing the wrong thing to start with. But, you know, any any biodiversity that you can add onto the farm, even if it is just a few trees to start with and experiment, as you say, with different seed mixes, if you're going to plant a little, you know, a grass margin or something, it's better just to try a little area to begin with. Um, unless, of course, you're going into a big scheme and then you're sort of set with the guidance of, of what the scheme tells you to do but even within those schemes there is options to make up your own mixes isn't there Louise as you've done you know you don't have to stick with sow a grass margin you can add in things that you know work on your farm. Yes but, um, the, we, we sort of saw from experience of the margins we've done before those kind of species that have grown really well and so it was just a case of adding in a few extras which costs a little bit more but um, we know they work so just adding in a couple of different mixes to increase the range of species was relatively easy to do and um because because we'd seen with our own eyes that actually um they they do grow well and just by making a little improvement we can hopefully increase the biodiversity and we've planted our woodland we sowed a a, a standard mix because it'll be an open canopy for a very long time um, but it means that the ground, it, it'll not allow wheat, arable weeds to develop, it'll allow a good sward to develop. And we've added in a few, a woodland mix and a hedgerow mix as well, which were quite expensive. <laughs> but uh, um, we, hopefully they'll get established well. And by the time the canopy of the trees closes and several, however many years it takes to do that, we should have a ground, good ground flora as well as a good... Um, um, species mix in the trees as well so we're looking forward to seeing how that develops and it should make a big difference now that's great we actually have some photos of your species rich the field margins so we'll attach them to the whatever you get your podcast episode so you can um, see them i want to just take it back to the pollinators 
although that you can see them on your farm, do you have you ever done any surveys or have you collected data on what pollinators are there? No, we haven't done any official surveys of collecting of data, so it's really just anecdotal evidence. And that is something we would like to do with the new buffer strip we've put in because we know it was right across the middle of an arable field, so we know really there was um, there were no um, bees in there at all, for example. So we would like to probably do that in the starting in the spring. And um, I'm not sure where to start. I have uh, I know somebody who'd be an amateur who'd be interested in maybe doing a bee count for us, but um, we'd certainly be interested in collecting some some real data about it. I know there have been studies done elsewhere and um, we can talk about very much how we, we've seen a great improvement in, over the last 10 years. But um, I think, yeah, the short answer is no, we haven't really collected any proper data. I guess we regret not doing a baseline when we started this because it would have been really interesting. We, we, we do the annual bird count and sometimes when we did the bird count at the start, we would do a bird count and we would have to be very, look a long way to see the birds to have any significant numbers of anything at all. Whereas today, we have a huge variety of, of um, birds living. We're so not we... very good at identifying birds either. <laughs> 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 so maybe we need to get somebody in to help us. Yeah. Mary Jane, what about you? Have you um, done any biodiversity surveys on your farm? Um, yeah, so similar to John and Louise, that's a, a regret of ours as well. So um, my husband Tom and I have been married for 11 years now. And um, the first year that we got married, we got into the SRDP scheme. And um, yeah, just about finished the marriage before it started because we had to plant four kilometres of hedges. And he had to do that before we got married in the middle of May. So yeah, it lost about half a stone with the stress and the, and the labour. It was a lot of big fields, um, just fences or fences that had broken down, um, you know, because we, we do have cattle, but a lot of them are on um, rented grazing elsewhere. So the main home farm is arable. Um, so the, the hedgerows and fence lines, what was left of them weren't, weren't great. So we saw that as an opportunity to plant a lot of hedges and physically just looking at the farm, similar to what John was saying about the grass margins, it's just really transformed the way the whole farm looks. Um, it's just added that sort of structural diversity to the farm that we didn't have before and I really regret not doing a survey before and after now now these hedges are 11 years old and looking tremendous you wouldn't know that they're as young as they are they've really filled out and we're cutting them into a nice sort of a-line shape now so that they're thickening, thickening out and we try and leave we're out of the scheme now so we had the SRDP for five years and then an each scheme for six we managed to get an extension but we've not managed to get into it um, or I didn't try to get into it again this time I didn't think we'd get enough points so we're out of the scheme but even with that we're going to try and cut the internal hedges the ones that are not along roadsides we're going to try and cut them every second year as we were doing under the the old scheme rather than every year just to give them that opportunity to flower and thicken out and that obviously provides us a source for pollinators and birds alike so I do wish we'd done some surveys at the start um, and as well as the hedges we had annual management options as well so we had overwintered stubbles, wild bird seed and, and grass margins and just walking through them in the winter you would see a lot of little birds flying up as you were walking through and without the stubbles obviously it's just sown into a winter crop or it's a ploughed field and there wasn't the, the seed eating birds just you know pecking around on the ground but when you leave a winter stubble that they're there getting the chaff and the spilt grain and things throughout the winter it just gives them that that seed source so again 
kind of wish we'd done some surveys of that and if that habitat's not there the birds just move on so it would have been um, interesting to do that. Yeah I'm sure there are uh, lots of surveys have been done uh, over the years on different scales so it would be really good to have a re- have some references, I think, as well to other places and what's what's actually really happened. And one of the things we talked about was, you know, we have we increased profitability by putting in margins, or at least not lost profitability. And it's one of the things that are very hard to quantify about what what that means. And so it would be really good, I think, to have some wider data on what actually happens over a number of years on a farm when you when you implement some of these things. I think um, that's probably a common theme like with the both of you. You know that biodiversity is increasing through these methods that you're doing, but you just don't have the data. How do you think it's going to look in future when increasing biodiversity is going to be a, like a, a government policy based on funding? How do you think they're going to manage that? Is it going to be through surveys, do you think? I think um, things like birds, the, the, there, are, there are ways of measuring them. You can, you can have devices that listen to birds to tell you what you've got, I guess. There's going to have to be some sort of basic um, measuring of the flora and fauna and, and the things that are there. So that there is going to have to be a, an element of baselining. We had a trial with the Hutton Institute and we also had people doing bird counts and looking at the bird activity in the, the multi-species um, homegrown protein and on the arable crops and on the margins. And that data is starting to come forward that we're asking for. So it is beginning to appear. And we, there are people doing uh, bird and, and um, pollinator counts as well, but not enough. I think it would be standardising it across because all farms are different. Um, but I think one of the most important takeaways we have from this is having started this process we 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 really bought into NOE and we want to do it and even if we weren't in any scheme we would still be still be doing it like Mary Jane said about not cutting your hedges even though you can you're not obliged to not cut, cut them now um, it can make a huge difference and I think a very important thing is that um, if every farm did a little bit and it was all linked up it would collectively make a massive difference to biodiversity everywhere. And I think that's really important in terms of, we keep hearing about the climate change crisis and the biodiversity crisis. And it means that farmers can be part of the solution and are not seen as a problem. I think that's very close to our hearts that we can be part of the solution, I think. And, And if everybody did a little bit and weren't scared of doing that, um, uh, that that would be a very important thing that would come out of the, these kind of schemes. And um, so not being penalised for not doing it, but encouraged to do it for the right reasons, I think is important. But, but I do see, I'm sure, Mary Jane, you, you do more, because you see more farmers than we do, but it, it is happening. It's, 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 it's going on now. And it's going on in little, in, in, in smaller ways. I, I think it would be wrong if the focus of government and of some of the larger organisations, non-farming organisations, um, NGOs, if they, if, 
if some of these large estates and some of these places collected all the money and it, it doesn't and it, it becomes too concentrated. So the support and delivery of these um, environmental ecosystem services is just part and parcel of people's everyday farm management. And it, like ours, it doesn't take over every waking minute. What takes over waking minutes are dealing with hens and harvest and all the other things that we have to do. But making a little bit of time and a little bit of space for the margins, for biodiversity, and just making sure it works, it's, it's, it's easy to do. And it's still possible to run a profitable and um, productive farming business. And I think that's what people need to understand. And I do think that generally people are buying into that. It is happening. I'm very positive and, and um, hopeful about the future of Scottish agriculture delivering food and biodiversity and carbon sequestration and jobs and employment and activity. And that's a, a precious thing in, in today's age and needs to be valued. And farmers need to be valued for what they produce. Sometimes it seems it's easy to, to, to blame farmers, but that's not the case. We really are making a difference. Yeah, we've spoke about how you've enhanced the biodiversity at great length, but we've also you've also mentioned that you've maintained your farm profitability. What adaptions have you made to your business in order to maintain or increase your farm profitability, even though you're taking some fields out of arable into field margins? We um, take great care to not top or spray or otherwise damage the margins, not least because everybody's afraid of these reaction if we did do <laughs> And there have been occasions where it's happened. So on a day-to-day -day basis, we, we know the difference we don't, between the, the, the margins and the, the arable cropped area. We, we've consciously um, reduced our, our use of pesticides generally. We've, we've managed our fertilizer applications better. But um, I think it's just like, a, like any aspect, it's attention to detail. And I would say that we treat conservation as another farm enterprise in the same way as we've got, you know, we've got free range eggs, we've got all the arable crops. We have feed mixing, which is more or less an enterprise on its own and renewable energy and conservation. And these are things that we work at and they all get their the due care and attention. And um, the whole thing about being resilient is to try and have a business that where we're not exposed to external costs. And um, I guess within doing conservation, that hasn't made it. You know, we've, we had the upfront cost of establishing these margins and we have to maintain them and, and make sure that we, we keep that diversity. But fundamentally, it's just it's just business as usual. Yeah, I think you're a good example of how biodiversity can be enhanced, but then it also has the other benefits to the farm and can increase the profit profitability and also the carbon issue as well. Um, I just want to go back to, you've mentioned water margins and the uh, strips on them. Have you seen any difference in the species that are on the water margins or on the field margins? Is there any great difference? Lots of road ears, lots of hairs. <laughs> That <laughs> um, we we have we have it's quite a small stream running running through the middle of the farm, and the with quite steep banks and a lot of the field drains run into the um, uh, this little barn as well. Um, so it was quite diverse 
anyway, I think. And um, in terms of tussocky grasses and the sort of natural vegetation that was there before was quite good. And we've just extended that, so it's definitely improved. It's mainly grass, but there are occasional um, shrubby trees that have come up there, and we're now learning to, you know, appreciate them a bit more, and it doesn't do do any harm, and it forms that that very important corridor through the middle of the farm, linking up different areas. But we don't really see much difference between it and the other margins, I think, at the moment. But uh, that this is where perhaps uh, uh, some surveys would would make a difference. The the thing that's is very pleasing the, having green cover crops is as we we have now got um, golden plovers. We used to have them a long time ago, and and um, um, lapwings, which you know for a long time they were few and far between, and now we've got a lot of those with tawny owls and barn owls and all sorts of things, which were very seldom seen so and that's a sign that there is so much more you know there's, there's voles and there's things there to keep them all so that we've got lots of great parties it's it's um we're loving it you know the, the having the, the insects and things is obviously helping them as well having those margins and that space to, to live in so you know we see a lot of um as, as we say it's not well enough like everyone else, we all wish we'd done a better baseline study and we'd done a better study of, of what, what, we, what we have to do. I think you said earlier, John, as well, about having those two metres from the top of your bank. So for um, the geek and cross-compliance rules, you need to leave two metres uncultivated from the top of the bank of the watercourse. So if you've got quite a steep um, bank mm-hmm. going down to your watercourse, which it sounds like you do, and then two metres into the field... you can cultivate tight to those two meters but I would always recommend leaving a little bit extra just in case if you get an inspection there's always an argument about where exactly the top of a bank is so I would always recommend leaving two and a half to three meters if you can and the likes of barn owls particularly they need a much wider grass margin to encourage the voles and the mice and things so ideally you want a six meter margin for for, um, barn owls and partridge like a wider margin as well so Whilst it sounds like a lot of land, it's not really, you need your two metres for your cross compliance anyway. So what's an extra metre mm-hmm. or two on top of that? And I think it's it goes back to what Louise was saying about habitat connectivity. If you've got that water course running through your farm, if you make it a slightly wider feature, you're, you're meeting your cross compliance, you know you're safe for that, but you're also providing a valuable habitat that will link in with neighbouring farms and other habitats on your own farm, like your hedgerows and your and your trees that you've planted. We, we as you know, managing your helps. We, we made an X application. We, we would like to have five metre margins. And that's because of the reasons we just explained there, that it, it, is, um, it provides more habitat and everything else. But the other part is that if you're trying to, to take a to take the cuttings off of a margin. It's not easy to do if it's only three metres wide and the hedge is sticking out a metre into that anyway. So having wider margins actually is a way of, from my perspective, managing our margins better and doing a better job and being able to go in in September, October time, take those cuttings off. We're fortunate that we've got a biomass boiler so we can barely put it in the boiler, if nothing else, but we, we can make beneficial use of it. One of the unexplored areas for us is is actually determining what the beneficial um, 
things that live in the soil are. You know, when people do, we've been doing soil testing for 15, we've got 15 years of soil analysis, but it's all about nutrients and it's about um, the phosphate and potash and the pH levels, but there's not nothing there about the, the micro, microorganisms that live in it and whether they're better or worse. The, the closest that we get is counting worms and our worm count has been going up. But actually that's because there's something there for them to eat. So it's a bit like the discussion about insects or, or pollinators or, or birds. There needs to be a baseline study on the, on the micro organisms I think that's a collective one that, that live in, that live in the soil and I think that's that's a big unknown area and you know we, we've been putting on a lot of um, manure. manure and trying to do it properly and, and we've now started doing leaf tissue analysis and cutting back on the amount of ammonium nitrate we're putting on and we're doing more and more with our hen litter to try and sequester more of the ammonia there's a whole program there <laughs> I'm sure there's other people better suited than us to do that. So, soil, soil and nutrient management is a big part of what we do, but it, it, if it's a holistic approach to agriculture, you have to do all these things anyway, whether it's the biodiversity, the carbon or the soil. So Mary Jane, as your role as an agricultural consultant, are you seeing the wider benefits of increasing biodiversity on farm and increasing natural capital throughout Scotland? Yeah, as John and Louise were sort of saying, just from their locality, there is definitely an increase in people being more aware of the biodiversity issues. And it's just that mindset shift from the 70s, 80s, massive production to we're all now understanding how important it is to increase and maintain the biodiversity that you've got on your farm. So there's definitely that sort of mind mindset shift and that's uh, people are exploring options to, to improve biodiversity on their farm with funding such as the EEC scheme and the previous SRDP scheme which allowed people to, to get funding to, to try some of these options. There is obviously a wider benefit across uh, across Scottish agriculture. You can see where people have planted hedges, you can tell you know whether it's a 10-year-old hedge or a five-year-old hedge, just driving through the countryside you can see the new fences and you think oh they must have got into a scheme and it's obvious in particular regions where farms have collaborated together you know, if there's a network of hedges and they're all brand new and they're all fenced, you can tell that they probably had an SRDP or an EEC scheme. And, and that's great to be able to see that across across Scotland. I think going forward with, with policy, we know that the new, whatever comes after the sing, single farm payment, the new subsidy system is going to be biodiversity and climate focused. So at the moment, you can get the Preparing for Sustainable Farming grant, which gives you £500 towards the cost of doing a carbon audit. That's available at the moment and it should be available to claim again next year. So the deadline is, is annual, so it's, it closes at the end of December and there will be a new round again in the new year for anyone who's looking to do a carbon audit. And as, as John said, that gives you an opportunity to assess your business as a whole and look at things that you can improve because carbon is money generally. So you can um, reduce your inputs possibly and that would hopefully save you money. But along with that as well, you can get the Preparing for Sustainable Farming grant for soil sampling. So you can get 20% of your farm done per year. And this is a new grant and it's giving people the option to do GPS soil sampling, which perhaps has been cost prohibitive to people in the past, but it's now making it accessible for people to be able to afford to do it. And that goes back to the sort of soil health conversation we were just having there about um, making sure that your soil pH and your, your P and K levels are good. But there's also the option there to do soil organic levels. And that gives you an idea of soil health. John mentioned doing earthworm counts as well. That's a good opportunity just to give you a baseline. 
sort of soil health test you, you might know when you're plowing your field or cultivating if you're inundated with seagulls that's always a good sign that you've got plenty of bugs and, and earthworms in the soil that's kind of anecdotal but you can actually dig a spade full of, of soil and do an earthworm count and um, SRUC have got some guide sheets on that to give you an idea of how to do that and how to assess whether your soil health levels are good that's sort of a basic baseline assessment and if you are thinking of changing any management practices through through doing soil sampling um, perhaps growing cover crops for the first time or incorporating organic manures it might be a good idea as we as we've talked about we've all regretted not doing a survey to start with so perhaps if you are going to change some soil management practices maybe you could could do some of those surveys now before you change anything just to give yourself a bit of baseline data so Going back to your question, I think that's the way things are moving. We'll be looking more at soil health. Biodiversity-wise, there are going to be incentives under the new um, whatever comes after basic payment scheme. There's going to be like an enhancement payment for doing some biodiversity measures. We don't quite know what those those will be yet, but it might be a case of similar to the greening that we have at the moment. You might, if you do 5% of your land in, I don't know, grass margins, for example, you might get a top-up payment. So I think that's the way things are going. We don't quite know the, the finer detail of that. It'll be after 2025 that we have that scheme coming into place. But it's a good time to be assessing your business, looking at what you're doing at the moment. Could you be doing more and getting yourself ready for what's coming? Because we do know that things are changing. And if you want to get the, the level of subsidy you've been getting, it, it's important to, to have these thing, things in mind. Um, John also mentioned there the ILMP, which is the Integrated Land Management Plan. That's um, a grant of £1,200, um, which is available still at the moment. And that gives you the opportunity to have a look at your business as a whole. And it gives you a chance to identify um, any issues that, that, that could be coming up. In addition to that, you can also get an extra £1,000 for specialist plans, one of which is a biodiversity audit. And a lot of farms are starting to ask me for this Um under the LEAF scheme. The, um, the LEAF scheme is now asking for people to do a biodiversity audit. So that's a, a full a full grant, 100% grant, £1,000. I can generally do a farm audit for £1,000. You go out and you assess the full, whole farm, map what habitats you've got there, do a bit of a desktop survey about what species would be there. And it gives you, again, that sort of baseline like baseline data to for going forward. So I think that's a good opportunity for anyone who's listening who might be interested in having a sort of basic survey of their farm done, mapping the habitats and identifying areas for improvement. It's just to make people aware that that grant is there at the moment. I would take advantage of it while it's there because we don't know how long it'll be there for. And in the not too distant future, you might be having to do this without a grant. So I would suggest people have a look at that. We've mentioned that you've got your agriculture podcast for the Farm Advisory Service. Do you have what do you have coming up on the series? So we've released three episodes so far. And my favourite of that was with Sammy Kinghorn, the Paralympian from the Scottish Borders. So another Borders girl. Um, So you can listen to that at the moment. We've got um, a crofter on there. And, and Sammy Kinghorn and Peter Eccles, who is an ex-colleague from SAC, who's been doing exciting things at Sockland Farm. We've got three more still to come, including a top secret guest. So I won't um, give away who we've got coming next, but um, it's well worth a listen. So you can find that wherever you find your usual podcasts by searching Agri Space Culture. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. And thanks again for both for joining us. And thank you for joining us in this Natural Capital episode. If you enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and follow our podcast wherever you listen to them. Leave us a review to let us know how we are doing and get in touch if you want to find out more. If you enjoyed this episode, then you will also enjoy some of our other shows, such as Cropcast, which covers all things crops and soils, 
bringing you the timely updates and the latest research from our experts, and of course, agriculture. There is a wide range of other podcasts and resources available on the Fast Sounds pages and Farm Advisory Service website. I was your host, Rachel Smiley. Our producer is Ian Boyd, editor Ross McKenzie, executive producer Kerry Hammond, as part of the Farm Advisory Service in association with the Scottish Government. We hope you will join us again for the last episode in the series looking at green finance for natural capital. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.